nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light 'em up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadow out of sight. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today, I want to tell you a little bit about Mary Wollstonecraft, perhaps the the first major feminist writer in English. Uh, she dates from the the late 18th century. And this uh, occurred to me because lately we've had a number of books on alcoholism. And always, for some reason or another, it's all about males, especially the writers. Now, uh, it is true that most of the alcoholics uh, in the literary biz have been men, but there have been, what is it, um, a much larger than average number of uh, women. I think of Dorothy Parker, Edna St. Vincent Millay, and Sexton. Oh, gosh, there's at least a dozen names. And I just thought it would be fun to start with the uh, the first one on my list of feminists because <laughs> Mary Wollstonecraft was known to abuse some of the better, some of the better substances, yes. And I have a few quotations in uh, this essay, and I wanted to tell you where they're from. There's a terrific novel, uh, you know, a kind of a fiction uh, allization of the life of Mary Wollstonecraft. Uh, Francis Sherwood wrote it. It's called Vindication, a novel by Francis Sherwood. Uh, Farrar Strauss-Gerot. And uh, I got a big kick out of it. I think that's a good way to introduce students to these writers to speculate on what their lives might have been like uh, using the facts to take off from. Uh, let's see. In Vindication, we read that Mary Wollstonecraft, yes, Mary liked brandy to celebrate. Uh, opium. <laughs> everybody's favorite. Or laudanum, everybody's second favorite, which was uh, opium mixed with alcohol. Sherry or port? Gin, because it was so cheap. Or smoking tobacco from America. Now there was a pleasure. Or snuff? Or chocolate? Coffee, tea, the pleasures abounded. Uh, well, was Mary Wollstonecraft a junkie? Whoops, I mean a substance abuser. Uh, 
Now, this new novel, this biographical fiction by Francis Sherwood, uh, tells us it's probably not bloody likely because it was too expensive, all those substances. Did you know that the old English oath, bloody, by the way, bloody is a contraction of the phrase, by my lady. I like to use it because my lady seems a fine feminist phrase to swear by. (laughs) Yes, the goddess. It refers to the Christian Virgin Mary, of course, and is thus a transmutation of the ancient great mother, of course. Wollstonecraft did attempt suicide twice, and the author of this uh, novel puts these two events together in a scene during which Mary laps up all the laudanum in the house, and tries to drown herself. As I read Vindication, this astonishing popularization of the life of Mary Wollstonecraft, it did occur to me that if even half of it were true, truly true, Mary certainly could have used a drink or two. Actually, the melodrama in the book is uh, pretty close to the facts. Alcoholic, abusive father, masochistic, uh, negligent mother, loss of dearest childhood friend, woman by the name of Fanny Blood. Uh, Fanny died of tuberculosis, the white plague of that time. It's the stuff of which the early English novels uh, were made, novels like Pamela and Clarissa, by men, written by men, of course. Mary Wollstonecraft found that sadism demanded justice, not soap opera. Two hundred years plus ago, two hundred years and, what is that, twenty-two, in 1792... Mary Wollstonecraft wrote the historic feminist manifesto, A Vindication of the Rights of Woman. She was living in London at the time. She lived in the attic of her publisher, Joseph Johnson. Now, Joseph was gay, and if this novel is to be believed, he was certainly the most supportive and staunch friend she ever had in her life before she found her way to that attic at number 72 St. Paul's Churchyard. Mary had suffered physical, mental, emotional, sexual, and economic abuse. She transcended her circumstances and the continuing problems with the men in her life, writing as best she could. Circumstance caught up with her in 1797 when she died of septicemia, its childbed fever. Several days after the birth of her second daughter, Mary Godwin. Mary Godwin uh, was courted by her husband-to-be, Percy Shelley, in the St. Pancras churchyard over Mary Wollstonecraft's grave. Now, this was in 1814, and Mary Shelley, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, is another story. (laughs) While still... In her teens, Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein. Wollstonecraft's first daughter, Fanny Imlay, killed herself in 1812 at the age of 22. She had been refused a home with her mother's sisters. Uh, 
and being illegitimate, she was destitute. Frances Sherwood uh, <laughs> has done something quite, quite reckless. Uh, probably with intent. She has gotten herself all mixed up with her subject. Now, the scene in which Wollstonecraft has a naked lunch in the walled back garden of William Blake and his wife is vaguely reminiscent of the 60s, right? <laughs> yes, she identifies, the author identifies. Uh, William Blake gives her a white Lisbon to drink, doubtless wanting something to loosen the bodice. Uh, Sherwood, the author of the novel, has stated in interviews that she came of age in the climate of the 60s and that she does identify with Wollstonecraft. She began with the intent of writing a straight biography, but her passion for fiction took over. There's a collection of uh, uh, Sherwood's short stories. Everything You've Heard is True is the title. That was published, oh, back in 1989 by the Johns Hopkins University Press. Uh, she's won the O. Henry Awards and numerous fellowships. Uh, uh, NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts, uh, gave her money to journey to Mary Wollstonecraft's birthplace and follow the trail of uh, Wollstonecraft's life. The book is alive with historical details, smells, sewers, or the lack of this saucy and sad street life. The world of Hogarth's Gin Lane and the political upheavals of the age, they're all there. Uh, Tom Paine holds forth at the dinner table. Charlotte Corday, the woman who assassinated Marat, whom she felt was betraying the French Revolution. Uh, Charlotte believed that romantic love and other tender emotions ceased to touch the heart of a woman who aspires to knowledge. Yes. While Sherwood does not attempt to use 18th century language, it's hard to resist her takes on these characters. Some scholars may object to the liberties Sherwood has taken with history. There is clear evidence of Mary Wollstonecraft's melancholia. However, there is no record of her ever having taken, been taken to Bedlam. <laughs> the author states that she herself has suffered from manic depression, and I guess she thought the scenes in a lunatic asylum would add some local color. <laughs> this is an obvious elaboration and will doubtless add to the value of the movie rights. Now, some reviewers have suggested that Sherwood goes overboard in her graphic descriptions of Mary's lurid sexual liaisons. Personally, I think it is naive to assume that 18th century bedroom antics were any less bawdy than they are today. Who can say how 18th century sensibilities differed from our own? What Sherwood's research reveals is a society in which refined relations, sexual or otherwise, were certainly the exception, not the rule. She details the 
unwholesome state of human hygiene at a time when one historical estimate refers to 50,000 prostitutes working in London alone. Poor women often sewed themselves into their clothes. The waists were pinched, breasts shoved up and pushed out of laced bodices and whalebone stays, restricted uh, movement and breathing. Bodily functions were often performed in haste, sometimes in the street, so underpants were not worn. The prostitute simply raised her skirts. Now, there are scenes in the novel which may offend readers who prefer their feminist heroes to be dignified, dignified, right? Uh, Think of that. Women who uh, abuse substances, especially drunks, are always looked down upon while the men who uh, hang one on are romanticized. Anyway, in 1792, Wollstonecraft went to Paris. She wanted to cover the French Revolution for Joseph Johnson's magazine titled The Analytical Review. She had also been invited by members of the Revolutionary Committee to put together plans for the education of females pray the fall of the ancient regime, yes. When her hopes for a new world order hit the wall, her American lover, Gilbert Imlay, that's the father of her first child, when he tells her that her ideals are only illusions, <laughs> yes, she despairs. They, they hide. The two of them hide from the terror. That's what was what the uh, violence in the streets was called, the terror. They hide in an opulent empty house. Uh, Aristocrats have deserted it and fled the city. The sexual games uh, escalate as Robespierre's bloody reign of terror turns reason to riot. It's called Madame Guillotine Goes Dancing. Even the king, you remember, and Marie Antoinette uh, (laughs) met the guillotine. This theme of violence in the streets, juxtaposed with whips in the bedroom, is depressingly familiar to those of us living today, is it not? The historical record does give clear evidence of Mary's masochistic relation to uh, Gilbert Imlay. Here it is, 1794, and she writes to him, uh, this is a quote from one of the letters, a fact, yes. Gracious God, it is impossible to stifle something like resentment when I receive fresh proofs of your indifference. What I have suffered this past year is not to be forgiven. Love is a want of my heart. I have examined myself lately with more care than formerly, and I find that to deaden is not to calm the mind. Aiming at tranquility, I have almost destroyed all the energy of my soul. Despair since the birth of my child has rendered me stupid. 
This desire of regaining peace, do you understand me, has made me forget the respect due to my own emotions, sacred emotions that are the sure harbingers of the delights I was formed to enjoy and shall enjoy, for nothing can extinguish the heavenly spark. Um, that's uh, an excerpt from a letter uh, in a book called 800 Years of Women's Letters, edited by Olga Kenyon, Faber and Faber. A wonderful, a wonderful uh, reference book. Letters always reveal so much more than novels. What the author has done, that is, uh, what Frances Sherwood has done, is to enter into a collaboration with her subject. She has got into Mary Wollstonecraft's skin. Her life, that is, Frances Sherwood's life, she is 52, has been just as dramatic as her hero's. Her father committed suicide when she was 17. She was the only white student at Howard University in 1960. She struggled with an interracial marriage for 25 years. Her three grown children now live away from home. She describes her writing process as all-consuming like Mary Wollstonecraft herself. The picture is of a passionate but often erratic writer with the temperament of a poet. Mary Wollstonecraft despaired of her own efforts to write fiction because it was inadequate to the needs of the women of her time. Her age, her era, cried out for political and social justice. Like Tom Paine, she surrendered to rhetoric. She wrote polemics. Her subject was always the emancipation and liberation of women. <laughs> Horace Walpole, famous writer of the time, called her a hyena in petticoats. That's a quote. A hyena in petticoats. She was given the usual sneer by the patriarchal literary establishment. I believe she was politically correct to write polemics rather than romance novels. Her work sold like hula hoops, printing after printing. Yet her life is truly that of a great English romantic. Perhaps if she had lived longer than her 38 years, it might have been different. Perhaps her daughter, Mary Shelley, completes the picture. Someone once said that in the past it often took two generations of women to complete one human life. <laughs> I think that's true. Some people say it maybe takes three generations of women. Uh, I think of all the mothers and daughters I know who seem to be two halves of a whole. Uh, anyway, I think it's time for a Mary Wollstonecraft revival. Susan B. Anthony's feminist newspaper, The Revolution, serialized a vindication of the rights of woman in the late 1860s. 
Mary's question in 1792 was, how many generations may be necessary to give vigor to the virtue and talents of the freed posterity of abject slaves? Well, <laughs> too bloody many, if you ask me. Now, we know that biographies and autobiographies are exciting ways to learn about women, women of the past. Uh, coming soon, there is a biography of the Irish patriot Maud Gunn, spelled G-O-N-N-E, Margaret Ward, yes, Harper, San Francisco. There are a number of biographies I have on my table at home. Uh, Curriculum Vitae is an autobiography of Muriel Spark from Houghton Mifflin. Now, Muriel Spark is just terrific. My favorite, favorite Muriel Spark is that uh, that uh, crazy movie, uh, book and movie, The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. You remember Miss Jean Brody, uh, Maggie Smith, now in Downton Abbey. She played that when she was very, very young, and it was so, so exciting. Uh, anyway, Mary Wollstonecraft. After Mary Wollstonecraft, I think my favorite people are probably the Brontes. Oh, well, let's see, along with George Eliot. Uh, I love Jane Austen, but... Uh, She's entirely too wise and cheerful for me. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think, uh, she's, what is that? Uh, she's a positive, positive force. I think that's why she's so popular. Uh, I like the Brontes because their world was so dark. Uh, they did try to transcend it, but they couldn't quite do that. Uh, Emily Bronte used her life to fuel her art. Uh, the graves of the characters in her book, Wuthering Heights, uh, they serve as metaphors for the love that comes beyond the grave. When the long dead Catherine Earnshaw, you remember the character, she died in childbirth at the age of 23, echoes of Mary Wollstonecraft. She is to be joined underground by her recently deceased husband, Edgar Linton. And Heathcliff, her great love, opens her grave. He discovers her body has scarcely decomposed. Perhaps Emily Bronte had seen such things in that graveyard that surrounded her. Uh, on three sides of the parsonage, there were uh, new, fresh graves, and uh, there was oh, a well, a well, uh, right there in the graveyard. They were drinking death, those Bronte sisters. Uh, perhaps it is true that those heavy stone slabs used on the tombs did slow down decomposition, but... In the book, in uh, Wuthering Heights, Heathcliff tells his housekeeper 
about his plans. Uh, he tells Nellie about joining Kathy in the earth when he dies yesterday, he says. Yesterday I got the sexton who was digging Linton's grave. I got him to remove the earth off her coffin lid and I opened it. I thought once I would have stayed there when I saw her face again. It is hers yet. He had hard work to, uh, to stir me, but the sexton said it would change if the air blew on it, so I struck one side of the coffin loose and covered it up. Not Linton's side, damn him. I bribed the sexton to pull it away. Yes, when I'm laid there, I will be on the other side, and the coffin will be open. Yes, slide mine out too. Yes, that side of my coffin next to hers. I'll have it made so, and then, by the time Linton gets to us, he will not know which is which. Now, scenes like this were not uncommon in the literature of the early 19th century. Oh boy, I think of the description George Sand gives in her History of My Life. She writes of her last farewell to her father. She kisses his lips. That's correct. Yes, that's a fact. She kisses his lips ten years after his burial. This was during the funeral of her grandmother. Her tutor discovered that her father's head had come apart from his body. Uh, his neck was broken in a fall from his horse. So the tutor invites George Sand. She's young, yes, young woman. He invites George Sand to enter the crypt and to kiss her father goodbye, as she never had an opportunity to do so when he was alive. George Sand describes this uh experience as very moving. I remember the exhumed body of Marguerite Gauthier in the novel uh, La Dama Camellia, 1848 by Dumas. You remember. You remember Camille, of course, the exhumation of, uh, oh, my favorite exhumation is that of Lizzie Seidald, uh, now, that's another one that's true, a fact. It happened. Lizzie was the young wife of Dante Gabriel Rossetti. Rossetti buried his liberty in Lizzie's coffin. But then, some seven years later, he recovered from his grief and decided to dig them up. Hmm. Ah, manuscripts, lost manuscripts. Now, Lizzie, his wife, Lizzie had killed herself with an overdose of laudanum. <laughs> this is getting to be deja vu all over again, right? Laudanum, the wine or tincture of opium. Now, that story goes that Lizzie's golden hair had kept on growing and that it filled her coffin. Golden Lizzie is perhaps the woman made famous as the tormented creature in Christina Rossetti's poem, Goblin Market. Now, Christina Rossetti, 
was Dante Gabriel Rossetti's sister. <laughs> My mind always wanders to Dante Gabriel Rossetti when I think of the Brontes, because he's the one who wrote my favorite review of Wuthering Heights. It's dated back in 1854. Rossetti wrote about Wuthering Heights, about Emily Bronte's novel. It is a fiend of a book. The action is laid in hell. Only it seems places and people have English names there. Here is Emily Bronte's poem, yes, ending this little essay. Moonless above bends twilight's dome, the mute bird sitting on the stone, the dark moss dripping from the wall, the thorn trees gaunt, the walks o'ergrown. I love them, how I love them all. So much for the 19th century. <laughs> the 18th and 19th century are still my favorite, but I wouldn't want to live there. Cultural Center invites you to view the Day of the Dead exhibit, Visions at Twilight. The exhibit features traditional altars and multidimensional art installations by more than 80 Bay Area artists. Opening night takes place at 6 p.m. on Friday, October 10th at Somards Cultural Center, 934 Brannan Street at 8th Street in San Francisco. Somards is wheelchair accessible and the event is a benefit for the Somards Cultural Center. This Day of the Dead exhibit is on display from Friday, October 10th through Saturday, November 8th. For more information, visit www.somards.com. Dot org or call 415-863-1414. And you're listening to KPFA 